Colossians 3, starting at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Christine. Just bear with me for a moment. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way, th- whoops, our way through those verses. Uh, and it'll be good if you have them in front of you as we do that. Uh, over the 13 years that I've been in ministry, paid ministry, uh, I've preached in a whole bunch of different places. Um, used a whole bunch of different lecterns and different pulpits. This one's lovely. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Uh, but there's one other that stood out to me. Um, and it stood out to me not because it was particularly fancy or particularly elaborate. Uh, it was memorable. Um, it was in a church that I'd just been employed at uh, in as an intern. We'd only been there for a few weeks. Uh, and the time had come for me to give my very first sermon. Now, I'd never been in the pulpit of this church before. I'd never, never even been to the front of this church or looked at the lectern. Uh, and someone else had been leading the service, it was my turn to get up. I got up to um, deliver the sermon and the very first thing that I saw uh, on the top of the platformy part of the the lectern was a laminated sign that someone had put there. I had no idea it existed. And it had a quote on it. The quote was, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Now, I'd never, never heard that line before. It turns out it's a Bible quote. Uh, from John chapter 12, a verse that I'd never read before in my my whole life. Uh, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. It's given by a group of Greeks who have heard about Jesus and want to meet him and hear from him uh, about the life that he was preaching of. And it struck me, reading that sign, that it was just so perfectly appropriate. We, We want to see Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we're about? Isn't that what preaching is about? What we as Christians are about, that Jesus would be seen. We want to see Jesus because as Jesus himself says, not long after that verse, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Um, He is the light. He is the light of life as John announces. And in believing him, in following him, we get to receive that light and become children of light. That's why seeing Jesus is so important. We would like to see Jesus. Ever since I read that, that's been my, I guess, unofficial uh, motto or goal in ministry. Uh, And through my almost seven years here. And I hope that through that, uh, and through my work here, our work here, that you've seen something of Jesus. 
Now, of course, that time's coming to an end. So what does that mean for you? <laughs> I know what it means for us. Well, roughly, I know where we're heading. What does it mean for you? Well, in one sense, it means a big change. In another sense, it actually means no change at all. <laughs> because I'm not the only person who can show you Jesus. I'm very thankful for that fact. And actually, I, I'm convinced that God has given you everything you need to see him and to grow in him and flourish in him. Because I know that God has given you another, each other. And that's essentially what this passage is about. And that's why I want to explore it with you this morning and encourage you as we leave here that you'll be a people who see Jesus in and with one another. We're going to see that as we pull this passage apart. You might have noticed Paul's got a whole stack of commands here. That they're just one after the other. Um, none of them are terribly unexpected or groundbreaking in and of themselves, but they are all terribly important. And that's why he lists them and, and groups them together here for us. You see that again in verse 12 through 15. I'll read those verses again. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Um, it can be a bit overwhelming when we, when we list them all and when we run through all of those commands one by one. There's so many of them. It sounds like so much to focus on. But actually, when you start to distill this down, when you condense them and, and, and zoom a bit out, there's a picture that comes into focus for us. Um, a, a helpful question for me is, uh, ask yourself this, who is it that exemplifies all these qualities? Who is it that exemplifies it? And if you've read the book of Colossians, you'll know that's an easy answer because Paul's been talking about him the whole way through. It's Jesus. Paul is saying to the church in Colossae here, he's saying, live like Jesus. Make sure your life looks like him. And it makes perfect sense, really, in view of what's gone before and in view of what he's already written throughout this letter. Um, he's spoken of the link that Jesus' people have with Jesus. If you scan back to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. He says, you have a life now in Jesus. You have been raised with him. His life is yours. He doubles down in chapter 3, verse 4. Christ, who is your life. And again in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. You have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of uh, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. See, what Paul is saying is something dramatic has happened to you believers. When you've come to believe in Jesus, it's not as if you've just added something else to your life. Now that you're you and now you're you who is also a Christian, that's not it at all. Well, instead, what happens is you become something entirely new. Something dramatic happens to you, spiritually at least. You are linked to Jesus now. In fact, your entire location has changed. You're not just you here. You're you in Jesus. In him, in his death, so that you have died to your old, sinful, fleshy self. In him, in his life, in the hope of life eternal. Made new and recreated like him. Paul is saying, you're not who you used to be. Who you are has changed completely and irrevocably. You have died and been made alive. You are right this moment being renewed and recreated. 
There has been a decisive break with your past and now you're being shaped like him. That your life would look like Jesus. And Paul says, this is what that looks like. It looks like these qualities all linked together by this radical other-centeredness. As Jesus was for you, so you, being made in his image, are for others. And the reason behind that is that when you meet as his people and when other people meet you as his people, it feels different. You and anyone who comes into contact with you can see Jesus here. And in seeing him, grow themselves to and in him. Uh, early on in our marriage, um, I decided I would take up footy. I'd never, never played footy before. Um, I thought, you know, 23, not too, not too old to give it a crack. Never played any club sport at all. Um, but I was keen, so I found a club, the Bridge North Parrots, which is not the most intimidating club mascot ever, but anyway. And we thought we'd give it a crack. Now, this club was not particularly helpful for me. Um, certainly when I arrived, it, that, no one told me what to expect. No one told me what to do. You just kind of bowled up and, and did it. Um, but it's funny what you pick up from people. I'd always assumed that when you went to footy training, you would either train in training singlets or in bond singlets. Everyone wore bond singlets at the time. But when I turned up, everyone was in AFL Guernseys. That was just what you did. You're very expensive Guernseys, and so that's what I started to wear too. I assumed that game day was turn up for your match, um, play, and then leave. But every Saturday, everyone would turn up watch the unders before, watch the seniors afterwards. He would spend the whole day at the club. That's how the club worked. That was the expectation. I assumed that post-match, uh, you warmed down, uh, you rehydrated, you did all those sorts of good things. Um, I was partly right. Post-match, um, out comes the esky, right into the middle of the change room, full of beers. <laughs> and everyone would rehydrate, uh, which is not my choice, but anyway. But, but no one explained any of those things. No one said, here's your information sheet, this is what you do in this club, this is how this club works. Um, no one told me explicitly, this is just what people did. This is how the club worked. And by joining the club, you saw how it worked, you learned how it worked. And you started to do it yourself. And so it is here in the church. The way that you and we and all of us act together, the way we... Uh, act towards one another, it tells us, it tells us something about who we are. It communicates a message. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's that message going to be? When we see each other acting together, when other people come in and see us as a church, what will they see? Will they see Jesus? That's the real question, isn't it? It's easy for us to get this out of line. We think we need to be nice, and that's true, we do need to be nice. And yet the danger is it's possible to be nice and still not be what Paul's describing here. It's possible to be friendly and warm and even generous and still not quite get this. Because here's the catch, if that's all we are, then people won't stick. Because there won't be any need to. You can find friendly, warm, generous uh, in all sorts of places. 
And most of those places actually ask a whole lot less of you than the church. If all we are is nice, then we actually fall short. And we'll feel it. It will feel nice, but we'll feel a bit hollow as well. And when challenges come, and when cracks appear, people will vanish. But Jesus has won us to something so much better. He has won us to more than just being nice. He has won us to being like him. I've been lots, part of lots of really nice clubs and organisations, but I've never been part of anything quite like the church when it's working as Jesus intends it, when it's looking like Jesus as he intended it to do. Because the church is fundamentally different. It is founded on Christ-likeness, on these radical things that he taught us of selflessness, of self-giving, of self-sacrificing, of, of being defined by love and forgiveness and, and peace. Because that's who Jesus is for us. That's what Jesus has done for us and that's what he calls us to be for one another. See, that the church is designed to be a radical counterculture, that you will not encounter anything like the church out in the world. That it's compassionate and gracious and forgiving and selfless. That it's for broken people. When we live like this, the church is something beautiful and wonderful. It is healing and it is life-giving and it is radically different. And people are drawn to it. And those who are drawn to it thrive and grow and flourish. Not because this is special, but because Jesus is special. And they see Jesus here. And they can't find that anywhere else. So look like Jesus and live like Jesus and be like him. It's a beautiful picture that Paul paints. But for it to be possible, there is one essential ingredient that we cannot miss out on. And that's where Paul goes next. He says, if you want to be this type of people, if you want to be this community, this is what you need to do it. Look at verse 16 and 17. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says, if you want to be this type of community, if you want to look like Jesus, you need his word. You need his word. You need the message of Jesus. The good news of forgiveness, of life in his death and resurrection. And you don't just need a dash of it. Every time I'm, I read these verses, I'm, I'm struck by them. This, this picture of a church is, is a picture of a church not with, you know, the word as one activity amongst many, as just a part of something it does. Um, it's a picture of the word as utterly essential, of a, of a church that is soaked in genuine, uh, Jesus-shaped gospel culture that is, that is entirely saturated and permeated by it. You know, what Paul is saying here is that the, the place of the word in the church is, is like the place of blood in the body. You know, to lack it is very bad. We, I mean, we forget it, don't we? We, we take it for granted that, that right at this moment, your heart is beating um, 50, 70 times per minute, depending on how fit you are. 
And each of those beats pushes blood throughout your body. It pushes it through the arteries and through the veins and out into the capillaries. Um, and I'm told that if you add them all together, there are about 100,000 kilometers of blood vessel in your body, in the average adult. <laughs> That's like, where do they put Like, where do you put it all? That's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? And all of it is designed so that that oxygen-bearing, life-giving blood goes to every part of your body, every single inch, to keep it alive. Because if that process stops, if the blood flow stops somewhere, that part of your body starts to die. As blood is to the body, so the word is to the church. That's what Paul is picturing here. Do you, do you see the language he uses? It's so intense. He says that the word ought to dwell among you. you know, not visit sporadically, not camp out here every, every so often, but live permanently. He says it's to be here richly, you know, not intermittently, not you know, every now and again, but abundantly. It's to be here in excess, overflowing from us. All of the time, in all of the place, the gospel, God's living truth, is to be here and amongst us. And as it does so, it, it grows in us deep thankfulness. Because every time we encounter the word, we are reminded again of the incredible grace that God has lavished on us in Jesus. As we do this, it grows in us deep reflection in ourselves and towards each other as well. Because every time we read the word, our own lives come into sharp relief and we're reminded of the need to call ourselves and each other to account by it. And as he says, we do this for one another. Please know, when you read those words, what it means is each for the other. Not a few for a few others, but each for the other, all of us. See, for the church to be a word-saturated place, it doesn't need a minister. Um, technically, it doesn't even need elders. Those things are good gifts, and it should have them. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But they are not essential to the work. What is essential to the work is you. Each and every one of you. <laughs> not just the, the, the smart ones. Um, not just the good talkers or the extroverts. It needs each and every one of you. If this church is going to look like Jesus, if it's going to be the Christ-shaped community he made it to be, it needs to be saturated by his word. His gospel of love and forgiveness and kindness and peace. So eat this word, drink deeply of it and let it flow into every corner of this church's life. It's not an individual thing. The word is not something that we just read quietly in our home and then move on from. It is something that we share together. It is a one another thing. Because as we delight in the word, as we are shaped by this word, we share it together. It is wonderfully and powerfully corporate. And if we stop, the life of the church becomes anemic. It won't happen overnight. Uh, like a part of the body that's been cut off from circulation, dying takes a little while. But it will happen. So don't stop. Don't stop that life-giving word pumping around this church because you will live and the people you encounter will live as you speak the word to them. They will see and they will hear Jesus growing pow and grow powerfully and beautifully and inevitably in him.
I know New Year's re resolutions are a, a bit of a naff thing, but, but maybe you can make one this year just for me. Just indulge me. Make it a resolution to spark and be the spark of an increasingly word-centred culture in this church. Maybe you'll start with your conversations. You know, it can be so easy for our conversations to just, you know, stay up here, be, be, be cliche or a bit shallow or a bit superficial. Maybe your conversations this year can be more word-soaked, more word-shaped. Maybe this year is a year of recommitting to your connect, that you can be there and dig deep and engage richly and personally in the word with all the other people that God has put there for, for your sake together as a group. Maybe this year is a year of joining something new. Maybe jump onto cross-connect. Maybe, maybe join a Bible-reading partnership. Maybe start something new. Grab a friend. Uh, read the Bible together. You know, let's, let's say, let's meet over coffee or beer or craft or knitting or whatever it is that floats your boat and read the Bible together and pray. Use that opportunity. What a special thing that is. Find a book, a good book, and read it with a friend. Maybe commit to listening to sermons or talks and, and talking them over with someone once you've both listened to them. Or whatever it is, let your mind run. How can you have the word dwell richly in you so that from you it would be in this church as well, that it would permeate every part of its life? Because as you look like Jesus and as you speak of Jesus, this will be a place where people meet and see Jesus and know him and grow in him and love him more and more. And this place will grow from strength to strength, all because of Jesus in you. Jesus builds his church, he's promised to, and he does it by his people looking like and speaking of him. So be a part of that work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this church would be a church where Jesus is seen and met. I pray that these people, this church family, that you would make them more and more like Jesus, that daily you would be renewing and reshaping them, that they would be more and more like your son, so that everyone who encounters these people here would see him and learn more of him. Father, I pray that you would grow a flourishing gospel culture here, that your word would dwell here richly, that it would shape everything that this church is about, from conversations to ministries to life itself, that people would come here and hear of your son. Father, may you make this church like Jesus, that it would be a place where people meet him and see him and grow in him and learn him and find life in him. Lord, you have promised to build your church to this end and I pray that in your grace you would do that day by day in powerful and wonderful and unexpected ways. We pray this in his name. Amen.